You can open your Bibles with me to John 17. John 17. As we continue inching forward through John 17, last week we looked together at verse 1 and we saw that when Jesus had spoken these words, He lifted up His eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify Your Son that the Son may glorify You. And essentially, our primary focus was to see this. The sermon was ended up being titled Holy Ground or Holy Ground and Uncommon Prayer. But we saw Christ demonstrating to these disciples and to us that everything He'd been telling them about their access to the Father, His prayer in this chapter of Scripture is demonstrating to them the very relationship to the Father He's been telling them that they have. And we saw the grounds for that and what it meant for Him to be glorified and to glorify the Father in light of the cross. And we press on today and we'll consider the next couple of verses, Lord willing. But before we work through them, I will ask you at this time, if you're able, to stand with me. And we'll just limit the reading to the first five verses just for a sense of the context. And then we will pray together and begin. John chapter 17 I'll start with you once again in verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, He lifted up His eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify Your Son that the Son may glorify You, since You have given Him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom You have given Him. And this is eternal life, that they know You, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom You have sent. I glorified You on earth, having accomplished the work that You gave Me to do. And now, Father, glorify Me in Your own presence with the glory that I had with You before the world existed. Thank you. You may be seated. If you're being seated, go with me once again to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, I do come to You now and ask for help. I ask for guidance and clarity as we look into Your Word. Father, I pray. Lord, I, I, I borrow from and cling to the prayers of Your Son that we who are Your people would have and know this eternal life. That we would know You, the living God. And not merely in an academic way, but in a living and vital and experiential way that we would know you. Oh, Father, please do guard me from misspeaking. Guard us from error. For your glory and your name's sake, protect us from saying things that aren't true. But Father, I do pray for authority, for boldness. Oh God, that you would rend the heavens in power and speak to us in such a way that nourishes our souls, that ministers to our hearts and gives us strength and confidence in you. Father, I ask that you would do these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't know that I've ever told you all this. I know I've told you how much I enjoy the prayer time before during the offertory. But have I ever told you that there's a temptation at times when I pray before I start the sermon to not stop praying? 
There's a place of comfort in that. Just continuing to ask and talking with Him and not having to talk with you. A thought that hit me just now. At some point, you've got to shut that down and begin preaching. So I pray that He'll be glorified in what we have to consider together today. Something was mentioned in the Sunday school concerning the effectual prayers of Jesus Christ. Do you know what that means? The effectual prayers of Jesus Christ. It means that Jesus' prayers are always answered. Jesus never prays to the Father and hears no, or not going to happen, or maybe, or might. It's always yes, yes. His prayers are answered. And something to consider together as we look into John 17 today is that very reality. And not only that, I just want to have you glance forward with me. If you look in the text and look at verse 20 of John 17, Jesus says, I do not ask for these only, referring to the disciples that are with him at that time. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. You knew Jesus is talking about? That's right. Talking about you if you have believed in Jesus Christ. Jesus was praying for you in John 17. And His prayers are answered yes. And so as we look into this, let me suggest to you that it is not arrogance if you believe God's Word. If you're confident that because Jesus said this, I can trust it, long for it, pray for it, and believe God for it, that's not arrogance. That's confidence in God. And my one of the things I'm desiring to see today is that we would believe Jesus and what He tells us today and that it would impact our lives significantly so. We start together today in verse 2. And I want to begin by looking at the word since. Jesus says, since you have given Him authority over all flesh... To give eternal life to all whom you have given Him. What does the word since indicate to us today? He says, since you have given Him authority over all flesh. Well, this reference, this since, tells us that there is an inseparable relationship with the first part of Jesus' prayer, with verse 1. What do I mean by that? Essentially, Jesus is praying and He's asking the Father, saying, glorify the Son, that the Son may glorify you since, or because, or for the sake of, and by the way of. Jesus is connecting the glory He was praying about last week in front of us to the petition He offers here. There's an inseparable link between Jesus giving eternal life to all that the Father's given Him and the glory of the Father and the Son. He goes immediately out of this glorify you since you have given him authority over all flesh. Now, that's interesting. The chief end of all that God does is what? What is the chief end of man? I might ask the Westminster Catechism will tell you to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And we would respond. The chief end of man is to glorify God. Why is that? Well, The chief end of all that God does is His own glory. He does all that He does for His own namesake and His own glory. And what's interesting in this text is we're beginning to see that the unique, peculiar, and special way that God is glorified is by giving eternal life to His people. You follow what I'm saying? 
Jesus says, Father, glorify yourself, glorify your son, that the son may glorify you. What's that going to look like? Saving people, saving people, saving those that are given by the father. That's what it looks like for the father to be glorified. So my question is, do you want to glorify Jesus Christ? As Christians, we all say, yes, I want to bring glory to the one who has secured my soul. Well, if you want to glorify Christ, if you want to glorify the father. And be prepared to proclaim this gospel, be prepared to pray that he would effectually save his people, because in that is the glory of God. Now, I can already imagine someone saying, but wait a minute. Does that mean God's not glorified whenever people reject the gospel and presumably die in their sin and go to hell? Is God glorified in that? Well, let's look together for just a moment at 2 Corinthians chapter 2. A very sobering text. 2 Corinthians chapter 2. I'm telling you here in the sermon today that there is a special and unique glory of God as He saves His people effectually. As he accomplishes it and brings it to pass in their lives. What about those who are not saved? 2 Corinthians chapter 2. Begin reading at verse 14. This is what we see. But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession. And through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death and to the other, a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? You get what he's saying there, what Paul's saying? That these believing people who are proclaiming Christ to everyone around them, there's a fragrance a fragrance that's going up to God, a beautiful, a sweet smell, a savor to God, both in those who are being saved by the gospel being proclaimed and those who are rejecting it. They're both glorifying God. How can that be? How can it be? God will be glorified in the damnation of the wicked. His justice will be glorified as those who reject Christ face their ultimate end. He will be glorified in both the salvation of the elect and the damnation of the lost. And yet, Jesus' prayer seems to be indicating to us that there is a special and certainly preferred on our part glory which is revealed in the salvation of His people. You know, I listened to a sermon one time. It was a wonderful sermon. I've recommended it to you before by a man named Paris Reedhead. He uh, was an old-timer preacher. He preached in this country and... Oh, I'd say probably the 50s and 60s. And some of you don't get offended at hearing me say 50s and 60s is way old. But this man, Paris Reedhead, preached a sermon called Ten Shekels in a Shirt. And in the sermon, at one point, he's talking about how people are so watered down in their understanding of the gospel that they're told, come to Jesus so that you can escape hell and all the, the wrath of God. And that's why you come. And he says, why should a person come to Christ? Why should a person repent? His answer is this. He says, because it's the only way that God can get glory out of a human being. And that sounds striking. And I submit to you that it's a wonderful sermon, but he's wrong at that point. 
Coming to Christ and being saved is not the only way that God will get glory out of a human being, but it's the only way that's going to work out well for you. Do you want God to be glorified? Jesus is saying he's praying according to the father being glorified. And that has a special relationship with his people being saved since the next part of verse two says this since what since you have given him authority over all flesh and you'll see it parts hopefully how I'm building an argument here in light of the text as it's given. But just see that I'm not coming up with this myself. Essentially, let me tell you this. I'm saying Jesus says, glorify the son that you may be glorified. And then he says, since or because you've given him authority over all flesh to do what? To give eternal life to all you you've given him. You see how I'm connecting this? The father's glorified in the son giving eternal life. That's the point I'm making. And right sandwiched in between those two ideas is this. You have given him authority over all flesh. Jesus prayer to the father to glorify himself by giving eternal life to all his people is directly related to this expression of him having authority over all flesh. What does that mean? What does it mean that Jesus has authority over all flesh? What does it have to do with you? You know, there's a common evangelistic method that many preachers like to employ and have employed And this is how it goes. They'll tell you about Jesus. They'll tell you about the cross. They'll tell you about your sin. And then they'll say, now, who would like to make Jesus the Lord of your life? And there is some legitimacy to this appeal. If you're not living in the light of Christ's lordship over you, it is very likely that you have never been born again. And so to recognize and live in light of the fact that Jesus is Lord, which is related to this word authority, he has authority over all flesh. That is a relevant thing to say, but that form of evangelism is very bad because you you shouldn't call upon a person to make Jesus Lord. Understand, we don't have that power. We don't have the ability to make Jesus Lord. He is Lord. We're supposed to live in light of his lordship. We're supposed to live in light of who the scriptures tell us that he is the name that the father has given him. But consider this. We do not make Jesus Lord, but we do recognize that he is and we ought to seek to live as if he is who he is. It is God, the father who has made him Lord over all. Last week, we had a scripture from Philippians two that we considered, but I just want to look at a couple of verses there. You don't have to turn there, but you can take this down verses nine through eleven. He says, therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God, the father. Here's the point. Jesus, we're reading you have given him authority over all flesh. What that means is Jesus has authority over all flesh. He already is Lord over every human. Every person who's ever been born or ever will be, Jesus is the authority. Jesus is over them all. He's over us all. He has authority over all. And from that scripture in Philippians 2, you see this Jesus who has authority over all, we're reading, there's a day coming when all, both the saved and the lost, whether they're God-hating or very religious, are going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. 
Now, let me caution you. This, this truth should not comfort or console you at all if you're lost. The fact that you will recognize and you will proclaim with your mouth that Jesus is Lord on the last day, that should not comfort you at all. That even if you fail to do so now, because that does not mean that you'll be saved. The proclamation of Jesus as Lord on the last day will not save you. The Scripture says even those who reject Him now are going to be at a point where they cannot deny that Jesus is who He said that He is. Those who deny Him now will be, be unable to deny Him then. And in that day, Jesus the Son will be vindicated. He has all authority over all flesh now. In that day, He's going to be vindicated. Now here's my point. Jesus' vindication. When all the unbelieving world cries out in honesty, He was Lord, He is Lord. In that day, that will be a day of vindication for Jesus, but not a salvation day. Not a day of salvation. That day is today. Hebrews says again, He appoints a certain day today saying through David so long afterward and the words already quoted, today, today if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts. Today, this is the appointed time. And so let us not be confused with the calling upon us to repent and believe in Jesus today just because the Scripture is saying that there is a day coming when we're all going to say it anyway. But if you wait until that day to come and submit yourself to Christ, that day it will be too late. That day it will not avail you at all to do it then. He has been given authority over all flesh. Now, while that expression does mean, it is telling us that Jesus has authority over every person, lost and saved, the context of the prayer that Jesus is offering is primarily concerning His people. And concerning the glory of God in saving His people. So let me ask you, in light of this text, what significance is there that Jesus has authority over all flesh? How is that related to His right and His ability to give eternal life to everyone the Father's given Him? What relationship is there in those things? Look with me just for a moment at Romans chapter 5. Why is it so important that Jesus is the one who has authority over all flesh? Romans chapter 5 Beginning in verse 17, we read this. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass, one trespass led to condemnation for all men. So one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. So by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through the righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Some very similar themes as our text, isn't there? Jesus has authority over all flesh. He's the one who all flesh must be united to rather than this other man, Adam, must be united to this one who's over all flesh and it leading to eternal life. Is that not exactly what's the way this is fleshed out for us today? Here's the point. Jesus 
as the Son of God, had all authority over all flesh before He became incarnate. You ever think about that? Jesus as God, it was all His. John's told us in the first chapter, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and it was by this very Word that God created everything that He created. Jesus is the Maker of all things in this earth. They belong to Him already. The point that we're seeing in all authority has been given to Jesus concerning all flesh is that the one, the one who owned that everything belonged to in his incarnation as a man, he's assumed power, authority and responsibility for all men. He has stepped into time as the representative head for the human race in order to set right what Adam had destroyed and cast into death and ruin. You see, Adam originally, the first man, was the head of humanity. That's the argument Paul is using in Romans 5. He was the head, and this Adam is in no position to judge humanity. Why not? His miserable failure. How can Adam judge the human race and his posterity? He's the one responsible for the mess that we're in now. He has no standing to be the judge, to be the one in authority over all flesh, though he is our failing representative if we don't come to Christ. This Jesus has been given as a man authority over all flesh, meaning that Jesus is now the one responsible for the state of the human race. All of Adam's descendants and if you're tempted to say, ah, oh, that Adam, to be angry with Adam as though if he hadn't done that, why is Adam's guilt laid on me? Listen, any degree of honesty in you will tell you that you would have done no better. Adam was our representative, not only in that he represented us in his failure, not only in that we're counted guilty because of him in original sin, but He represented us in that we would have done exactly as He did. And we prove it every day. We prove it every day in our own sin and failure. And there was nothing left but for God to deal out hot vengeance against Adam. To deal out hot vengeance against all flesh. And wrath against the evil hearts of men. In, in many ways, you can see this illustrated throughout the entirety of human history. The flood is one great demonstration of God's vengeance and wrath against sinful men. And you fast forward and we see the repeated pattern in Sodom and Gomorrah. You see it in the conquest of Joshua in Canaan and every other ministration of judgment that's presented in the history of the Scriptures. God's justice demands and calls for the execution of wrath. Real wrath against every sinful person. And in Adam... We have no argument. And we should not expect anything but terror and death in Adam. What it means that Jesus has been given authority over all flesh. Let me ask you this. You must ask this or you're going to be stunted in your appreciation for what's offered to you in Christ. Is it automatically a good thing that Jesus has taken Adam's place as the authoritative head over humanity? Is it automatically good that Jesus is that one who has authority over all flesh? Is that necessarily good news for us? You see, John chapter 5 and verse 27 
Jesus said this concerning what the father had done with him. Jesus says the father, he has given him the son. So Jesus says he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the son of man. Now, maybe as Christians, we don't think about this as often. We'll say that Jesus became a man in order to save men and himself. And that's true. But he also told us that because he is the son of man, he's been given authority to execute judgment. Think about this for a moment. This Jesus, as a man, has authority and the right to execute judgment against all of humanity. And the picture that's given to us here in John 17, that he has been given all authority over all flesh, is a reference to Christ's great power and his strength in conquering the enemies of God. Jesus has power and authority to defeat and vanquish God's enemies. So I ask again, does the fact that Jesus Christ, who is righteous, the fact that he has all power and all authority to execute judgment against all of God's enemies, does that bring you comfort? Does that bring you comfort? Romans 8 verse 7 says, The mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Here's what I'm driving at. That you and I are counted in that number of God's enemies which the Son of Man has every right to vanquish and destroy. That as an enemy of God because of my sin and rebellion, the Son of God and the Son of Man should have destroyed me with His great power and authority. And He had every right to do so. This is important as a foundation in what we're going to see. When we consider the biblical picture of what's true of every person, who's born into this world, what would a righteous judge with all power and all authority do with us? And yet, what is the heart of the Savior which is revealed in this prayer? There's a direct connection between these things. How does Jesus, this one with all power, how does He choose to exercise this power and authority? Notice the connection has given him authority to execute judgment. We're reading that about Jesus. And in John 17, he's got authority over all flesh to do what? To give eternal life to all whom you've given him. We're kind of predisposed as Christian people to expect that to be there. He has all authority to give eternal life. But if we read it, if we were to remove some of our biases that we have and read it just plainly, you probably might be inclined to expect He's been given all authority over all flesh to damn and destroy all who have opposed God. But that's not what's there, is it? That's not what we read. We're reading of a Jesus who takes all of this divine authority over all flesh to give eternal life. What an incredible expression this is to give eternal life to all whom you've given Him. One of the greatest mysteries of all time is that this Son of Man, God's righteous chosen servant, should choose to use His power, His authority, His great strength, His perfect righteousness to display the glory of the Father in what way? By redeeming and saving sinful, undeserving people. Part of this doesn't compute. I know personally, maybe you're more righteous than me, but if I had a great kingdom and many people, strong people at my disposal, 
and there were enemies of mine that were charging the castle, I would say, go kill them all. Wipe them out. And what we're seeing with Christ is that sometimes maybe our temptation with political discussions, just if they would just disappear, things would get better. Christ says, no, I'm going to use my power. I'm going to to conquer their hearts. I'm going to, to, to take them to myself and do a work to save them. This is no small thing. You see, the contrast that's set in, in this text of authority on the one hand over all flesh and giving eternal life, it's depicted for us and described in Revelation chapter 5. You can look here with me. Rain and I listened both to a sermon this week by a man by the name of Michael Reeves. And he drew this, this thought out. And I'm already thinking about these truths from John 17. And just consider this. Consider how this is set before us. Revelation chapter 5, beginning in verse 1, John writes of his vision and he says, Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? You know what's on that scroll, right? If this scroll is not unrolled, there's no eternal life for anyone. There's no salvation. As a matter of fact, that's going to be a source of weeping and lament coming up. There's a hopeless despair unless there's one who is mighty and conquering and overcoming sin. And it says and no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah the root of David has conquered so that he can open the scroll and it's seven seals. Now think about this. That's a picture here of authority, of strength and of power. And if you think of a picture of a lion going out and destroying its enemies, what's that look like? Biting, devouring, killing, slaying, using teeth and claw to do this work. And what are we reading here? Here's this scroll that needs to be opened and it can only be opened by a lion. One with authority. And we read the next verse. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing. So it had been slain with seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. The picture that's given his exercising of this strength and authority can never be separated. Imagine, imagine, and I, Michael Reeves brought this out so well, so I'm going to borrow from him, but listen, imagine John sitting there and he hears of this lion and he turns around. What do you think he was looking for? And all of a sudden, it's a lamb. And it's in apparent weakness. It's been slain. But in that slain, in that death, is the strength and the authority to give eternal life, to open the scroll, to welcome in those who are on that scroll and say, listen, life, that comes through the Lamb slain. 
we would have no cause for rejoicing, no hope for delivering ourselves and only an expectation of being devoured and destroyed by this great lion of Judah and cast into outer darkness with weeping and gnashing of teeth. If our gaze were not lifted to see him as this lamb, as if slain, the one who had the authority to judge the nations of men has used that great power to redeem men. And there is a day of judging that is coming, but that day has not yet come. And he's still standing before you today in this prayer, the certainty of this. He has authority. And what's he doing with that authority now? He's praying for those who've been given to him by the Father. He has all authority. One wonderful truth that we need to grab hold of in this text is that this expression was not a variant. It was not a change in plan. When Jesus is seen saying this, it's not as though the Father said, Son, just go judge the world. We've already read the Father Himself loves us. And we were chosen in Christ by the Father before the foundation of the world. And here we're reading these that Jesus is going to glorify the Father in the cross, dying for them. These are those who have been given to Him by the Father. If you're in Christ, if you've been united to Christ here today, Jesus knew you as he hung upon that tree. He had you in mind in order to glorify the Father through saving you. There's been a lot of flack and even discussion in this church over the song that ends with the expression that he, he thought of me above all. You're familiar with the song. That's not entirely true. He thought of the Father, but part of thinking of the Father was thinking about you. Who were given to him by the Father. You see what I'm saying? There's glory to God the Father as the Son dies for those the Father has given to him. He says to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. This was the plan before the world was. And those who were given to Christ by the Father would be redeemed. Now, in this, we do see the unique and the special beauty and glory of God's purpose to save those He's given to His Son. It's a beautiful thing. And everyone whom the Son intends to save will be saved. Jesus, He's not talking about possibilities here, you see. And here's here's an encouraging thing in our prayer that if we understand what's been revealed to be true concerning the will of the Father, we can pray those things with expectation. With confidence, Jesus says to give eternal life to all whom you've given him. It's not a maybe. It's it's certainly going to happen. And here's my contention as to why that is. Why this is so important. The son is fully committed to the father's glory. You hear what I'm saying? The son is committed to his father's glory. And the Father is committed to the Son's glory. And the Spirit is committed to the glory of the Father and the Son. And Jesus is telling us today that in this they are glorified by giving eternal life to all who will be saved. The glory of God is here and seen in this. It's not going to fail. This plan will not fail. 
And in light of that, what do you suppose is to be the experience of all of us who will inherit this eternal life? Does this make any real difference to you here today? What exactly does Jesus mean by this eternal life? To give eternal life to all whom you've given him? What is that eternal life he's referring to in these verses? He says in verse 3, And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I love, I told you before, I love it when things like this happen in the Scriptures. You know why that is? Uh, because I'm an expositor. I like to take the Scriptures, and I believe it's the calling of every godly preacher to do so. Take the Scriptures and explain what it means. So when I have a verse that uses a word like eternal life, and the very next verse tells me what that means, I like it. It's helpful. It's safe. But Jesus here tells us, gives us His definition of eternal life. And this expression is often misunderstood. What is it? What is eternal life? If your friends, your neighbors, your co-workers said, you're a Christian, tell me what eternal life is. Well, what would you say? What's your expression of eternal life? Jesus says, and this is eternal life. He tells us. You see, most people probably imagine that eternal life just means an endless existence. An endless existence. Eternal, forever, endless life. Existence. You're going to just exist forever. That's what a lot of people are probably likely to think. And that is necessarily part of what it means. Others imagine that eternal life just means that you get to escape death. And perhaps some kind of a resurrection from the dead someday. And that's true as well. But we can't limit our definition of eternal life to that. If you read John 3.16 and you see that for God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting or eternal life. That's for those who are saved, who are believing in this Son who has sinned. Eternal life. If eternal life, if everlasting life is only resurrection from the dead someday, that's going to happen to the lost who reject Jesus too. Do you, do you remember this back from John chapter 5 when we covered this? In John chapter 5, Jesus says in verses 28 and 29, Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear His voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. So you'll notice there seems to be an indication of an ongoing existence for both those who are under the resurrection of judgment and life. So it's not just a continued existence. And it's not just that you're going to get a physical resurrection someday. Well, what is eternal life? Still other people think that eternal life describes a blissful enjoyment of God. Let, let me pause for a minute. This is what I believe mo where most Christians, even today and historically, fall short of this verse. Many people believe that eternal life describes our blissful enjoyment of God after we've been raised from the dead, after we've been granted entrance into heaven, and that it's something that awaits, something that we're to know someday. Right? Well, there's truth in that. But it stops short of our text. Jesus defines eternal life in this way, that they know you, 
the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Do you find that your Christian life is lacking? Experientially? You see, in the last number of years, you can almost trace this historically, the last couple of hundred years especially, you can trace Christianity that really began to go away, especially the last hundred years, I guess. Christianity that has begun to go away from truth and to emphasize experience and, and, and temporal, supernatural things and depart from the truth of Scripture. And many of us, even here today, would say, we've got to get back to the text. We've got to get back to the truth of the Scriptures. And there's been a strong push, especially among like-minded churches as ourselves, to say, away from all the nonsense, let's get back to the book. Rightly so. But in so doing, I fear that we are extremely neglectful of this reality. To know God. To know the one true God. And Jesus Christ, whom he has sent. According to Jesus, according to Jesus with this prayer here, he is praying that we would know, experientially know the Father and know himself. To have a, a, an intimate, ongoing, experiential, spiritual relationship. Not just cold facts that you know about God, but vitality in the soul. The history of the Christian church can be demonstrated in periods where Christians by faith are trusting God's promises and periodically he does something we might call revival where he awakens them to the reality of what they're hoping for and looking to. Nothing short of that is needed today in even this place to know God in that way. Is Jesus expression here that they know you the only true God? What does he mean by that? Well, consider with me, you can turn there or take it down from Philippians chapter 3. A favorite section of Scripture of mine, and hopefully yours as well. Philippians 3, beginning in verse 8, Paul says, Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and may share in His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. A couple of observations here in Paul. Paul is not talking about something that he's only going to have in heaven someday. You notice he's saying that I may know Him when? As I'm sharing in His sufferings now. And notice he says that I may attain the resurrection from the dead. In other words, in my state on the earth now, that I may know Christ Jesus, my Lord, knowing Him. And you could rightly understand in the context there when he says, forgetting those things which are behind, referring to his life as a, as a Jew, his life as one who is a Pharisee and righteous according to the law, forgetting all of that and pressing on. But by this time in Paul's life, he's been a mighty and successful evangelist 
preacher of the gospel, church planner. He's accomplished a great deal and he knows a lot of stuff. But he says, I want to know him. And that's not to suggest that our knowing of God's to be separated from his word. But it's not limited to his word apart from the spirit to know him. Is Paul's experience an isolated thing? Is Paul's request, Paul's longing and desperation, is that something that only he was supposed to have? Somebody might say, well, you know, Paul, that was Paul. He, he saw the risen Lord. He, he was an apostle. He wrote scripture. I mean, is that really for me and you today to know God in this way? To experience eternal life in such a way that it means that I know that God is and not just according to what I've been told or what I think, but because I know that he's with me. He's really with me. Well, Paul says in Ephesians chapter three, something pretty incredible along those lines, not just about himself. Beginning in verse 14, Paul says, for this reason, I bow my knees before the father. Just pause for a moment. Christ in John 17 is praying on behalf of his people that we would know God. And here Paul is imitating his master. He's on his knees before the father on behalf of every family in heaven and on earth that is named by this God, this father. He says that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant to you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being inside by the spirit. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. That you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints. To comprehend as something you know. To comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth. And to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Think about this for a moment. Paul says, I want them to comprehend some stuff that surpasses knowledge. This is a knowing that goes beyond just the brain. This comprehension is of the soul. To know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. That you may be filled with all the fullness of God. There have been some wild eyed heresies that are labeled with the idea of knowing the fullness. But I submit to you it means more than we yet know. There is a fullness of understanding of God, an intimate relationship with God that we ought to yearn for. Jesus prayed for it here, that we would know him in this way. I believe the crippling disease, which has always weakened the church and is currently doing the same. And I'm talking about the true biblical church. I'm not talking about the wild eyed nut jobs who don't know what orthodoxy is. I'm saying what is crippling and weakening to the church in all generations is a quenching of the Holy Spirit and a denial of what Jesus is praying for here. That says, if I just know what's true, that's enough. You must know him who is true. You must be connected, intimately connected to him who is true. Jesus prayer that he's offering up here is on the basis of a living relationship that he had with his father. Now, in light of that, in all the context leading into where we're at today, the heart and center 
of Jesus' purpose in all of this, in this glorify me that I may glorify you and what we saw that that has to do with the cross. In light of all that, Jesus did this in order to reconcile us to God. Jesus Christ did not become incarnate and then live a perfect, sinless, righteous life, die on the cross, rise from the dead, and ascend to the Father just simply so you don't go to hell. You hear what I'm saying to you? He didn't do it only for that reason. You might argue it this way, that your escape from hell is a necessary end to the fact that you've been reconciled to God. The aim was not no, no hell. It was God, the living God, and being restored to relationship with God. That's why He came. Escaping the judgment is an inevitable result of being reconciled to God Himself. We have been restored to a right relationship with God and united to God in Christ in order that we might enjoy all the privileges of that union to know and love God. And so I tell you, the glory of God, which is seen in Jesus praying in John 17, is meant to be expressed and experienced through a vital living and spiritual awareness of God, of God. You see, I believe the unbiblical approach of someone who feels like their closeness to God is waning. They don't feel a spiritual nearness to God. If their, if their response to that is to go and seek out experience and go to mystics and go empty themselves and just try to figure out and connect with God themselves, that's dangerous. Don't do that. But whenever you feel as though your nearness to God is lacking, don't just say, well, I must have all I'm supposed to have right now. But see that as God working in your life and driving, compelling you back to His Word that you might see His Son and by Him grow in that knowledge and relationship. You see, when we pray, I suggest to you that every facet of the Christian life is to be understood through this lens of knowing God, the one true God and Jesus Christ whom He has sent. That every facet of the Christian experience is meant to be reined into this expression. We ought to view all things we do unto God in light of this expression here. What do I mean? When we pray, when we pray, we are meant to realize that we're coming into the presence of the living God. Hebrews tells us that our prayers are as though we're entering boldly before a throne. We're coming before a person. It's not just an utterance, but it's an actual engagement with a living person. That's prayer for us to be led by the Spirit. How many of you pray to be led by the Spirit? Well, what does that actually look like? What does it mean to be led by the Spirit of God? It's to walk in the experiential awareness that God is in my life. And as I step this direction or that direction, I can't do so without being reminded of my God. And He's there and He's watchful. And He's directing me back to His Word. Walk by the Spirit. That's something very experiential and practical. To know God in this intimate relational way. What about reading your Bible? Reading your Bible by the Spirit. What does that mean? What does it mean to know God in this intimate, living way as you read? It's that when you read His Word, you're hearing His voice. 
And it's not something you come to to study just to grow in your intellect. But God is talking to me. He has something to say to me. What is he saying? What is he communicating to me? And even as we come together to worship here in this context. That our praises are to one who is worthy and one who is presently when we gather ministering in our presence, all of the Christian life. There's a vital relationship in the vast majority of our experiences to live unaware of that. Well, let me commend you, Christian, when you don't feel the nearness of God and you commit yourself You have faith. You have the assurance, hope. You have the assurance of things hoped for. That's what faith is. I'm not sensing it or seeing it, but I have assurance that it's true. I'm continuing to hope in that and press forward. Wonderful, good. But don't let that cause you to settle for not going to the God who lives and the God who is and has promised Himself to you. I believe that picture we saw in Revelation 5, what John saw that produces this great proclamations of worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power, honor, glory, and blessing. And to the one who's seated on the throne and the Lamb, God the Father, God the Son, getting glory. What a perfect picture of exactly what Jesus is describing here. If He doesn't unite His people in that living relationship, there's no proclamation of glory, honor, and blessing to the one on the throne and the Lamb. He's bringing us in for the praise of His name. But that involves this intimate relationship. You see, our benefits, the benefits we have in a living relationship with God is not an addition to Jesus' prayer. Here's what I'm saying. Jesus is not praying, Father, glorify your son that the son may glorify you. Okay, now that I've got that out of the way, Father, I've got some work to do. I'm going to go give some eternal life. No, see the see the flow here. Father, glorify your son that the son may glorify you. How's that going to happen? Well, the son's been given authority over all flesh to give eternal life to the glory of the father. They're intimately connected In the beginning, the middle and the end of all of our experience of knowing God is centered on the person of Jesus Christ, the son. He says to know God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Here's the picture of Christ, his authority set perfectly alongside his compassion and tender mercy. Here's what it is. This Jesus who's praying in this way for us, an effectual prayer to give eternal life to His people. A beautiful expression. And again, I refer to the sermon Rain and I listened to by Michael Reeves. Maybe I should have just played that up here instead of preaching. He makes this observation that even as a Christian, when you sin, as a believer, trusting united to Christ, that that lion comes forth roaring to kill and put to death the sin that remains in you, but that He is ever there to receive you with the tenderness and compassion of a lamb. Of a lamb. Oh, He's still fierce. And He still hates sin and evil. But He loves you. And He loves you so much and the glory of the Father so much that He'll do whatever's necessary to kill that sin in you. What a beautiful picture that is. And I submit to you that that 
process, that sanctification as we're studying in the other room, that happens through our growing in our knowledge, intimate knowledge of God, experience of God. I pray that you would know that. So, my final thing today to the lost, I feel like this message was particularly catered to Christians, Christian people. Surely an evangelistic tone and the reality of what awaits us outside of this line and what He's accomplished for us as a lamb. Surely that's true. And yet, I do appeal to the lost and say once again, today is the day. You are being summoned to enter in to the glory of God demonstrated in His sending of His Son to die and to be an answer to the Son's prayer to the Father that you would come today and trust in Him. And to you as a Christian, I say, press on in seeking Him. Don't, don't neglect what's set before you in Christ. You will not grow positionally any closer to God than you were the day that you were saved. You have been placed in Christ. All spiritual blessings are given you in Christ. And yet, every one of us knows that our experience and awareness of those blessings ebb and flow. The message to you today is draw near to this God, this Christ, this Jesus, that you may know Him more and more, even as Paul sought to know Him more and more. And so with that, I will ask you to bow with me and close in prayer. Heavenly Father, Oh God, I thank You for Your perfect plan to say that it cannot be thwarted or undone. Oh God, I praise You for Your Son and His great power, His authority to represent us perfectly with all righteousness. To die under the weight of guilt that our sin deserved and rise again. And that His prayers are effectual and they are answered. Lord, I pray, I desperately pray that we would know You. We would press into You and Lord, that whatever Your Son meant, whatever He meant, whatever He means here to us today about knowing You and that eternal life, oh God, I pray that You would lead us, that by Your Spirit we would know it. We would know You. Father, convict the lost. Bring them to Jesus that they may live. And I ask it even as Your Son asks for Your glory. Do this work for Your glory. In Jesus' name, Amen.